Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Associate Professor of Old Testament, Brian Estelle. Brian is a graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, and the Catholic University of America with a Ph.D. in Semitic Languages and the author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah, and co-editor of The Law is Not of Faith. You can get these titles through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Brian, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Hello. Tell me a little bit about um, where you were raised and um, and maybe a little bit about your home life, uh, the, your, your church life, and, and the like. Yes, for the most part, we I was raised early on as a child in Texas, first four or five years of my life, but then my father took a job in Southern California in La Crescenta, Montrose area, that's just west of Pasadena. And I was raised in a mainline Presbyterian church. Uh, we went to church faithfully every Sunday, and I was raised in a Christian home. And um, it was uh, later in my late teen years that I actually became a Christian, and Christ's work became uh, very personal. And and um, I I can recognize a time when there was a significant change in my life, and um, I grasped the truths of the gospel. And then I left home in my late teen years and started to head north. When you, when you went north, where did you go? I was in Santa Barbara for a year uh, working for a group that worked with troubled teenagers. And then I was up in Yosemite off and on uh, during the summers of the early 80s. But uh, when I say went north, mostly to Eugene, Oregon, I chased a girl up there who later became my wife. And so you, but, uh, you, you caught her. I did. <laughs> the pursuit was difficult, but the prize was worth it. And um, so I ended up there uh, through the 80s, uh, up until the late 80s, and ended up at the University of Oregon. That's how I ended up up in that area. Uh, it became evident that the gospel was scarce in the Pacific Northwest, and we landed in an Orthodox Presbyterian church uh, there in Eugene, Oregon, uh, which we called our home as we got married and got settled and was introduced to the Reformed faith and fell in love with it and um, decided to uh, stay there in the OPC. What was it, Brian, that attracted you uh, to being Reformed? Well, when we were in Eugene and I was going to the University of Oregon there, which is sometimes called the Berkeley of the Northwest, uh, it's a very liberal atmosphere, and as Christians and having Christian friends there on campus, we were constantly challenged in our faith and in our belief system. And as I found in the small OPC church there in Eugene, an anchor and mooring for, for our souls and our thinking, I, I uh, came into contact with people who were thinking about the deep issues of their faith and how it related not only to their own souls, but also to the culture around about them and to the significant issues with which we were being confronted there at the university. And so um, finally I felt like I had found a home uh, in which I could uh, navigate 
the conditions of the modern university and um, feel like I wasn't ignoring the, the problems that professors and the culture around about us was putting before us in front of us, but rather in, engage those ideas as, as they were put uh, on the table in front of us. Was there something in, in particular uh, that attracted you to the Reformed faith? I mean, I, you, you, you've mentioned the intellectual coherence that it gave you. How did it affect you personally? Well, also, and most importantly, I had become a Christian, was still uh, young in my faith, but began to hear the gospel preached with crystal clarity, uh, namely that uh, Christ had satisfied uh, the, the Father's demands for justice and by offering himself up on the cross had turned away uh, the Father's wrath for all those who believe in him and are in him and uh, had became, become the uh, probation keeper, fulfilling all righteousness and doing uh, that which the first Adam had failed to do. So he as the second Adam had uh, fulfilled all righteousness and that was a sweet gospel to a uh, soul that uh, needed uh, to hear that he had been liberated in Christ. And so first and foremost, that's what attracted us to the church. We knew that that's the gospel we needed to grow especially in that hostile environment and especially as people that were relatively young in their faith. What were your studies uh, at the university? Um, mostly classics, Roman and Greek uh, civilization and languages. Uh, towards the end of my time there, I wanted to branch out and study other humanities, and so I took a major in the humanities, and that branched out into English literature, Western civilization, and Primarily wanted to get a good liberal arts humanities degree, and that's that's what I focused on with an emphasis in the Roman and Greek classics. When did you start thinking about seminary? It was while I was at that uh, church in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, the pastor there, uh, his name is Larry Kennard. He was one of the first trustees here at Westminster Seminary in California. So... He used to fly some of the professors up, and they'd have prospective students' conferences, and so I met some of the professors from Westminster Seminary early on. And also the church in which I was there, um, Oak Hill Presbyterian Church, began to give me feedback that I should think about going into the ministry. I had done some work with the youth, I had taught some Sunday school classes, and I think they began to see that I perhaps had the gifts that uh, would fit for the gospel ministry, and so they urged me to shape my studies accordingly, uh, perhaps with a view to going to seminary someday. And then under the mentoring hand of Larry Kennard, uh, he um, really coaxed me and encouraged me in that way. And then when he left and took another pastorate, and a grad from Westminster Seminary in California came, the Reverend Alfred Poirier, Alfred too, um, echoed some of the same uh, sentiments that Larry had previously and that the church uh, was uh, giving me feedback on a whole um, along those lines. And so all those things moved together uh, in such a way as to direct me to consider coming to seminary and eventually did. What were you thinking at the time? Did, was was uh, thinking about seminary something that you resisted or, or as you began to think about a life in pastoral ministry, 
was this something that you embraced and, and did it hit you quickly? Yes, this is what I should be doing or uh, did it take a long time to develop? It was a slow, gradual process, but there was a time when I came to a firm conviction that that's what I should be doing. Uh, that's an easy question to answer. Uh, it's somewhat personal, but I'll share. I share with students and I share with prospective students uh, if the occasion seems suitable. Um, I had very much accommodated to a low view of the ministry, accommodated to our culture's view of the ministry. And so what I really needed to do, Scott, was to repent of a low view of the ministry. And God used a number of people and a number of things to accomplish that in my life and my soul. Um, both Larry Kennard and, and Alfred Poyer, my, my own pastors, and then the elders who were in that church. And uh, also used, interestingly enough, uh, Ed Clowney's little book called To the Ministry. I'd read that mm -hmm. two or three times, and it fell on uh, deaf ears. But then through a constellation of experiences and gradual growth, when I read it the third time, it hit me like an anvil on the head. And uh, Ed's book was basically communicating the point that if God has called you to the ministry, even if you're gifted to do other things or pursue other careers, he will have his way with you. And this is indeed the most noble aspiration uh, to have and the most noble calling to which one can um, uh, um, go after. And so uh, to make a short story long, uh, <laughs> it was... It was uh, Ed's uh, book and uh, those gentle pastoral influences in my life that uh, made me decide to come here. And once I decided, I did not want to turn back. Uh, it was everything I wanted to do. I wanted nothing more than to come to Westminster Seminary in California, receive the training I needed to uh, go into the pastorate. And so once I got here, uh, I was like a little kid in a candy shop. You couldn't turn me back. And, and I was delighted to be here and pour my whole uh, heart and soul into the program. Yeah, when you were ordained, you became a metaphorical fisher of men, a, a fisherman. But there was a time in your life when you were a literal fisherman. Is, is my memory correct? That's, that's true. Um, when we were in Eugene, there was a couple who came to the church there. They were Reformed Baptists. Um, the man came to study law at the law school at the University of Oregon, and the woman came to do a master's in English literature, um, Duncan and Leslie Fields. We became, that is my wife and I, uh, Lisa, uh, we became very good friends with them. They were part owners of a commercial fishing operation in Kodiak, Alaska, and after getting to know them a couple of years, they asked us to come and join them, which we did. So for about eight or nine years during the summer, we made our way to uh, Kodiak every summer to participate in harvesting salmon, and uh, then would return in the fall to go to school. So we're thankful for that job. It was arduous labor, long hours, and... Um, a uh, very different kind of experience being out in the bush all summer and being away from civilization. But uh, the fact of the matter is it funded a lot of education, so we were very grateful for it. You, you continue to have outdoor interests. You're, uh, you, maybe you identify with Machen a little bit. You, you have a fondness for mountains and for being outdoors and climbing and the, and the like. 
That's true. In fact, as I was introduced to the Reformed faith and the story of Old Princeton and the story of Old Westminster and Machen, Machen's courageous stand against liberalism, one of the things I was attracted to as I read about him and the biographies about him was, was that he had a delight uh, in the mountains. One of my favorite essays that he wrote and spoke uh, on, I think indeed it was a radio address, if I remember correctly, the first time it was given is the uh, mountains and why we love them. And he, when he was over in Germany and, and would go to uh, the Swiss Alps during the summer, uh, rumor has it he used to uh, dance around the, the guides there as he would uh, um, uh, climb up in, in, in the mountains in the Swiss Alps. But yes, uh, very much. Uh, my wife and I met at an outdoors camp and similar to Outward Bound where we used to guide people out into the backcountry in Yosemite. And, and I had a love of uh, and the mountains and still do and um, have climbed quite a bit over the past 30 years. What, uh, what would be your, your most... Uh interesting climb you have you climbed any famous peaks or have you aspirations to climb any any notable peaks oh yes i do um but a uh, climber's future resume and goal is is like a, a writer's future publication sometimes persons private about that sometimes okay. public <laughs> well, i my my um, I climbed most of the big walls in Yosemite Valley. There was a time when um, my 20s and 30s where I spent a fair amount of time there. And so there probably the most memorable experience I had was climbing the South Bay route on the uh, south face of El Capitan, which is about a four-day endeavor. And I did that with two of my best friends. And... Um, it was always a dream as a kid. When I was 15, I saved up all my paper out money and uh, went to Yosemite Valley and uh, Tuolumne Meadows in order to go to the guide school and met some of the famous guides there who changed the face of rock climbing around the world. And so I fell in love with it. I never dreamed that I'd actually climb Half Dome someday or El Cap when you were 15 looking up at those big walls. It, it seemed bigger than, than life, but... As I went through an apprenticeship and learned the skills and then met other people who were climbing at a fairly high level, it became possible to do that. So, so I did that. A couple of years ago, I was on an expedition up to Alaska. Uh, we were attempting uh, Denali, or sometimes known as Mount McKinley. Mm-hmm. I myself had to come down um, partway up that climb because I had developed some uh, altitude-related illness called HAPE high-altitude pulmonary edema, but my partners went on and made it to the uh, summit. So um, that's still on my hit list to go back <laughs> and uh, and do again someday, uh, probably by another route but than the one we attempted. But nevertheless, yes, I love this uh, sport, and um, um, it's become um, part of my life that as long as the Lord gives me good health, I'll, I'll continue to... Uh, do well since i was raised in in flatland country and am a, a, a devout flatlander i i figure that any climb that doesn't involve falling off the mountain is a successful climb so you found yourself here at westminster seminary california uh, w- uh, what year did you arrive on campus we came in uh, january 
1989 and then left in the summer of 1992. So we were here in ni- from 1989 through 1992. And uh, you, you took a ministerial call after, after leaving seminary? We met a, a couple while we were here, uh, Nathan and Glenda Lewis. They asked us to come and help them plant a church back up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it was only for a short time, uh, about a year and a half, two years, but they were starting a church from the ground up and having seen the um, oh, the absence of good Bible teaching, Bible believing, Bible preaching churches in the Pacific Northwest, we, we were happy to help them and come alongside them and, and support them in that endeavor. They were in it for the long term. We were willing to commit uh, to a couple of years and help them get that off the ground. So that that was the first uh, um, ministry that we participated in after leaving here. It's interesting that uh, we have two faculty from the Pacific Northwest, and yet it's an area where Reformed Christianity, confessionally Reformed Christianity, is somewhat sparse. So that's an interesting providence that both you and Steve Baugh have connections to the Pacific Northwest and and were you in Eugene at the same time? Did your time overlap? We, we were. And actually, Steve was one of those people um, to whom we turned, Steve and Kathy. Uh, my wife, Lisa, knew Steve and Kathy from InterVarsity before we even met because she was at um, the University of Oregon at that time, and Steve and Kathy were involved. And then as we began to go to the OPC church there, we, we uh, hooked up with Steve and Kathy, and, and we knew them uh, Oh, over 30 years ago, and we would have never guessed that our paths would cross here and we'd be serving at the same time at Westminster Seminary in the future, but as God's providence uh, would have it, that's the way things turned out. While you were here at seminary, w- what do you think was the single biggest change you experienced? There were so many. It's hard to uh, focus on one or to make one preeminent among others. How about a couple of them? That's fine. What, what comes to mind is, first of all, the instruction in the classroom. And I can remember often leaving the classroom, uh, having heard a lecture, having participated in a discussion, and being mesmerized and awestruck by the majesty and compassion um, of God as it was communicated uh, to us through the scriptures as they were being exegeted or in a systematic theology class as Bob Strimple was unpacking one of the great doctrines of our uh, cherished faith in contrast to other uh, religions. So I would say first and foremost that, uh, of course, once to personalize a little bit, once I was here, I fell in love with the Hebrew language. I also became enamored with biblical theology, not at the price or expense of systematic theology, but in its support of and in coordination with systematic theology. But I I became enamored with the history of redemption and um, could see my own life begin taking shape, that I wanted to devote myself to these uh, particular uh, disciplines uh, with a kind of um, um, narrowed focus, if you will, um, with regards to specialization. Where did ministry take you, your your vocation, after you served in the Pacific Northwest? 
Well, when I was here, I did when I came, I did not plan on going on to graduate school. I I did not plan on uh, specializing in Semitic languages or laying a foundation so that I might be able to do work in biblical theology. Um, but when I was here, once again, I heard feedback from the church and from some of my professors, um, one or two in particular that pursued me with zeal and said, Brian, you should consider going on and doing more education and schooling with a view to um, uh, further preparation. So after we spent a couple of years in the Pacific Northwest, um, I began to pursue the possibility of going on to further grad school and, and specializing in Semitic languages. And the doors opened, and we ended up moving back to Washington, D.C., where I served uh, in a pastorate part-time at Knox Orthodox Presbyterian Church and um, pursuing my doctorate there at the Catholic University of America. They had a very good program in the area in which I was interested and so we moved 3,000 miles away, had never intended when we got married to move all the way across the country and set up camp, so to speak, on the East Coast. But that was a delightful time. It was a wonderful church to be in. And the program at the Catholic University of America was um, extremely challenging and uh, rewarding and uh, at the same time stimulating. And I'm very thankful um, for that institution and and for the cordial way that they welcomed this Orthodox Presbyterian uh, <laughs> minister. It was a great mystery to my sister-in-law, who is a nominal Catholic, when we went back there and she said, now explain this to me. What is an Orthodox Presbyterian minister doing going to the Catholic University of America in order to study Hebrew? This was a great puzzle to her. And... Um, but as I began to tell her why, um, uh, she began to catch a little bit of a, a view of what was motivating us to go back there. And a, a few times you've talked about the neighborhood that you lived in while you were uh, attending grad school. Yeah, we were in Silver Spring, Maryland. Since I was serving in the church there, we wanted to be close to the church. Uh, Knox Orthodox Presbyterian Church um, resides in a residential area just inside the Beltway, and um, so it's actually in Washington, D.C. We ourselves lived in Silver Spring, which is in Montgomery County, um, probably 10 minutes away from the church, and um, we lived in a small apartment while I was going to grad school, and then as we began to grow our family, we moved into a townhouse, and that's a very interesting area. It's um, very cosmopolitan, um, there were a lot of Jewish people in our neighborhood, so that was uh, fun to interact uh, with them. And the townhouse that we lived in um, was mostly um, Jewish people round about us, and so it was always fun when it would snow. All the kids would be out sliding on their toboggans, and we'd hear the Jewish mothers yelling at the little boys to put their kippahs back on and... Uh, <laughs> So uh, that was the exposure my, my boys had as they were uh, um, back there in Silver Spring, Maryland. 
Scott Clark here with the last Office Hours giveaway code. The code is Machen1936. That's Machen1936. Be one of the first 10 people to email us at officehours at wscal.edu, and we will send you a free copy of Ned B. Stonehouse's biography of J. Gresham Machen. Be sure to send us your name, your postal address, mention that you heard this episode, and mention the code Machen1936 to win. Now back to our Office Hours interview. When you came to Westminster Seminary, California to teach, you came back, what, what is it that has impressed you perhaps the most uh, thus far uh, in your career here? Well, um, a number of things come to mind. First, I, I felt honored and privileged to be asked to consider uh, receiving a call and an invitation from this seminary. Westminster Seminary in California fits in its expression of its mission what is close to my heart with regards to the mission of the church and uh, having come out of old Princeton and old Westminster and trying to raise up an educated ministry uh, which believes that the end of the church is to rightly preach the word of God, right, you know, rightly administer the sacraments, and if necessary also um, administer discipline to its members. Um, that was the heart and soul of this institution, and I knew um, most, not all, of the professors that were here at that time. Frankly and honestly, the seminary had gone through a difficult time of uh, transition, but I was very enthusiastic and excited about uh, the potential colleagues that uh, were here, and uh, counted it a great privilege to perhaps serve uh, uh, alongside them in training uh, people for the ministry. What, what do you love uh, about teaching here, studying here, being in this community? Well, what I love the most is what I mentioned earlier on, and it's what I found in Eugene, Oregon, through that little OPC, is um, I love the fact that uh, Westminster Seminary California is about the gospel and about Christ's work magnifying, showcasing his wonderful penalty-paying substitution and probation-keeping and uh, imparting to uh, the students who in turn will impart to their congregants when they're called to the ministry uh, the liberating message of the gospel. And uh, every single faculty member here is on the same page uh, in that respect. And so, for example, we just sent another group of students out in commencement. We had a student reception and then also a commencement exercise the following morning. And if any visitor in the gallery who came had any doubts about who we were, what we were teaching, what we were about, they should not have had any doubts when they left because it was crystal clear based upon the testimony of those students, which for some was very personal and, um, and poignant in the way they shared um, that this seminary and its education and curriculum and perhaps as important, the professors who embody all that uh, and want to inculcate these values and and these doctrines and their student are all about placarding the glorious riches of Christ's work. Uh, so that whatever discipline one is in, uh, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, or apologetics, uh, ultimately our passion and our goal is to magnify the wonderful work of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I count it as just um, perhaps... 
um, one of my greatest privileges in, in life uh, to be a part of that mission and to be able to have one little piece of the pie as far as preparing uh, these folks for the gospel ministry and for the ordained ministry that I can uh, come alongside uh, my uh, colleagues here and uh, contribute my small part uh, to all that. I, I guess I would add to that it's a great joy uh, to work alongside uh, uh, men who are uh, committed to be collegial and, um, and we have a wonderful spirit of unity here and that's something very precious that we uh, cherish, I think, uh, every day, every month, every year, because we realize that uh, division uh, uh, often comes. And, and so we're, we're very thankful for that, and um, we just count it a great privilege. We, we not only enjoy working together, and we have this common bond of unity and that we're seeking to fulfill this mission, but we have a lot of fun together as well, both on and off campus. And... and um, and uh, really consider each other uh, brothers in Christ who have this common mission, but also friends. And that's all uh, makes for a wonderful working environment. You just recently co-edited a volume called The Law is Not a Faith, and it tackles a difficult question, and for some folks, a controversial question, specifically the, the nature of the Mosaic Covenant in the history of redemption. Talk a little bit about that briefly. I don't want you to give the book away, but uh, first of all, why, why this book, and uh, why should people be interested in it? Well, several years ago, some of us began to bat around this idea. It was actually at a General Assembly that uh, one of the co-editors began to talk to me about this, and I'm fairly reticent or conservative with regards to what I commit myself to do and write about. Life is very short, and I don't want to become overcommitted and perhaps do injury to other aspects of my life. But the more we talked about this and the more we began, on the one hand, to hear issues and problems, some of which were on the surface and above, you know, up above the water, so to speak, but others that were subterranean, but nevertheless down at this seismic um, level, both in the church on the one hand, but then uh, all three of us are involved in the academy uh, on the other and involved in scholarship. Um, we began to see that one area of overlap um, that we thought needed to be addressed was this whole subject of the mosaic economy and the Mosaic Law and its relationship to the gospel. And we were hearing as a kind of leitmotif uh, problems in the church that were related to this, uh, particularly with and directly with the doctrine, but nevertheless very directly as well and systemically as well with the doctrine of justification. And uh, also in the academy with certain trends that were going on, especially in Pauline theology, one of our authors not at this institution, but somebody who works at another Reformed seminary and contributed uh, and has done most of his work in Pauline theology, uh, saw that this is one of the last and most important areas right now that Pauline theology is wrestling with and exercised uh, about, namely, what was Paul's view of the law? And, of course, um, uh, if you don't have a right understanding of that, 
it can contribute to a lot of toxicity in one's systematic theology and perhaps even solely one's view of the gospel. So we began to invite uh, scholars uh, to contribute to this volume, uh, both in the area of the history of exegesis uh, and, and the history of of uh, doctrine, historical theology, if you will, because we were convinced that this was a fairly ahistorical problem in the church. The church was not aware of much venerable and time-honored scholarship that had gone on with, with regards to uh, the book. And then we asked biblical scholars, both Old Testament and New Testament, contribute exegetical essays. And then at the end, we wanted a couple of systematic essays, so we asked uh, a couple of systematicians to uh, contribute to that. Well, this is an important topic, and it's an important volume because it's really uh, a unique volume in terms of its scope and in terms of the quality of the contributions and the way that, uh, that they address uh, coherently, as you say, this very in- important topic. If you're interested in this volume, you can order it through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Uh, That's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next month for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this podcast or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce or distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.